I can read the story, I can see the facts, I can even dig through commentaries and understand words and other things, but I wasn't there, neither were you. And often when I read the story, my tendency is to construct a narrative, a picture of the event that is, well, similar to the kinds of things I experience. For instance, if a famous teacher was going to be arriving in Bloomington, and that famous teacher was speaking here, it would be here in this church. We would advertise it with flyers all over the place like we're doing the missions conference. We would have it on our website. We would probably have it in other venues. We would be sending out one notice after another to allow you to get here on time to be a part of this. Maybe, depending on what was going on, we might actually sell tickets if it was a concert. You would know well in advance because we would advertise it and you would come. And that's not this event. They didn't advertise that way in first century Palestine. There was no means of communication that way. It was very, shall we say, organic. Jesus was just going from one village to the next, teaching wherever he went. And early in his ministry, he wasn't at the synagogue. He wasn't really at the temple. We have a couple of those episodes in the life of Jesus. But more often than not, he was walking the street, he was teaching in a field, and on this occasion, he was in a house. But word got around. It got around on the street that Jesus was coming back home, and he was going to be teaching. And people found out where, and they came. I said I'd try to imagine what it would be like. And this week when I thought about that, I had an epiphany. I thought to myself, I have been there. I mean, in that context. I've had the opportunity to travel in a lot different parts of the world in developing countries, and I've experienced it. In packed houses with people hanging out the windows and hanging in the windows, so hot you can't breathe, and people standing outside to hear and looking through windows, not like those, open windows. No glass, no screen. Listening to someone teach and speak about the gospel. It occurred to me the last time that happened was about a year and a half ago. I was in the Philippines and uh, visiting some of our missionaries. And Mike Bowado, um, our missionary, was uh, going to a town. And I went with him and Valerie. And we arrived, and it was sort of unannounced. I mean, people knew we were coming because people knew we were coming. But there weren't big posters, and there was no radio announcements. And nobody had any of that anyway. And so we arrived, and we walked up the street, and people started gathering. And before long, the house was absolutely full. And people were standing outside the windows and dogs and cats were running in and out. And the doors were not only unlocked, but wide open. And there was windows with no screens. And it was just huge and communal. And I couldn't get in. I sat on the outside under a porch eating coconut 
that had literally been picked off a tree by one of the native people as I listened to Mike talk about Jesus. And I thought to myself, yes, I have been there. That's what it was like. Jesus was in a house and people were crowded around listening. And four passionate, really persistent guys said, we got to get our friend to see Jesus. They couldn't get in the door. They couldn't push him through the window. So they went up to the roof. How? Probably by a ladder, which was not uncommon, or maybe outside stairs to the roof because that was not uncommon. And what was also not uncommon was that the roof was something that was removable. Somebody had come to my house and I had a guest there and they were teaching in my living room and they pounded through the roof. I would be irate. There'd be a lawsuit on your hands. You're going to pay for that, man. Not, not so much here. As a matter of fact, they would replace the roof every year. They would tear it off in the fall and prepare for the winter rains and put the thatch and the mud and the kinds of things that laid over the beams back up as their roof. So it really wasn't that difficult. And it really wasn't that alarming. They just opened up the roof. And they strategically, wouldn't you like to know whether or not they knew exactly where Jesus was standing? They strategically lowered this man down in front of him. And there he was. I also want to know, how did it happen? You know, did he hear him up there digging through the roof? I mean, it had to make a little noise. Is he teaching and he's ignoring them like I ignore those crows that everyone show up back here in the back? When nobody's looking or listening and you're watching the crows, I'm trying to figure out a way to distract your attention. I don't know. Surely they heard them. All of a sudden, there they are on the floor. And then what was Jesus' response? I don't mean the one in the text. I mean the human response that you know had to be there. What did he say? Besides your sins are forgiven and all that good stuff, did he say, hey, fellas, glad to see you dropped in? Um, Did he say... I knew you were coming. (laughs) I got this thing with God and he tells me about certain things and I'm ready for you. I don't know. We don't know. But it was a very, very human event. And here's the guy on a pallet. And Jesus responds basically in two ways. The first thing is he responds like this. You guys, you four friends, I am amazed at your faith. Your faith is incredible. And then he says to the young man, son, your sins are forgiven. And of course, that kicks off a controversy because the teachers of the law who are watching say to themselves, who does he think he is? This guy, he's forgiving sins? Now, of course, I could forgive a sin that you committed against me. If you punched me, I could say, I forgive you. But that's not what they were seeing here, and that's not what they expected was happening. As a matter of fact, we also know that in the context of Hebrew religion, a priest forgives sins on behalf of God for the people, but it's a part of a liturgical format. It's part of worship, and it's It's repentance and restoration and sacrifice. And then the priest makes statements that your sins are forgiven. But this was different. 
And oh, by the way, to give them credit, the teachers of the law were absolutely right when they were outraged. They said only God can forgive sins. And they were right, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, you notice they never said it out loud. Jesus, being able to read their thoughts, interrupts his own words and says, why are you thinking those thoughts? You know, I've often thought it would be great to hang out with Jesus. I mean, is that, would that be cool or what? To hang out with Jesus, to listen to his teaching, to watch him heal people. But then you have stuff like this. That'd be a little unnerving. So, Bob, what you're thinking is this. Let me, oh, I don't want that. (laughs) I don't want people reading my thoughts. But Jesus read their thoughts. And he said to them, let me ask you a question. What's easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But so you will know that the Son of Man, namely me, has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, young man, take up your bed and walk. I already said your sins are forgiven. Now I'm connecting it with healing and linking the two like you know I'm doing. Your sins are forgiven. I'm standing in the place of God. Well, that's amazing. A miracle that takes place, but it's especially amazing that he makes a point concerning himself with the miracle. It's also amazing, I think, their view of sickness. Because, you see, their view of sickness is unlike our modern-day view of sickness. If somebody was sick in their minds, it was the result of sin. I mean, in a culpable way. There's that crow, I told you. (laughs) He was reading my mind. (laughs) In a culpable way, they thought if you were sick, it was because you had sinned. And if you were to be healed, your sins must be forgiven. And then and then only would you be healed. They linked them together that way. and, And for a good reason, it was part of their culture. Now, they went a little too far, no doubt about that. Because Jesus, on one occasion, when speaking to the disciples, set the record straight. The disciples saw a man who was born blind, and he said, they said to him, Lord, this man, he's born blind. Matter of fact, been blind for 40 years, so who's to blame? Is it the sin of his parents, or is it his sins that made him blind? And Jesus said, neither one. In other words, culpability of sin doesn't necessarily mean that you get sick. And as a matter of fact, there's another reason why this man, this blows my mind, was born blind. There's a reason why he wandered around for 40 years in darkness. And the reason was so the glory of God could be manifest right here, right now. Be healed. For 40 years, he wandered in blindness. For that one moment, so the glory of God could be revealed, not just to them, but revealed to people for 2,000 years. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah, Jesus did set the record straight, but Jesus would be one of those folks who would not want us to separate the notion of sin from sickness. Because sickness... Let's just put it in really bold language. Sickness is a demonstration of evil. Disease is evil. 
Everything about the disease that's in the body is a reflection of everything gone wrong in the world. Sin does create sickness. When we fell in the garden, it affected everything. And when Jesus healed people, he wasn't just being a miracle worker. He was actually rolling back the curtain on eternity and saying, for this moment, I will show you the way things ought to be. And for this moment, I'll show you the way things will be. We separate sickness and sin. We separate healing in the body from faith. And as believers, we shouldn't. Leonard Sweet says something about this. He says, the healing force of faith, hope, and love are not incidental to health and medicine. Like an antibiotic, they enter the system quickly and do their work slowly. Curing or removal of disease may take place with medical means alone. But complete healing, he says, it's more than the body. Complete healing only takes place in partnership with faith. Medical healing is knowledge of God manifest through science. Spiritual healing is knowledge of God manifest through faith. It is the same knowledge and it is the same God. We don't synthesize very well, but Jesus did on that occasion and many others. It's, it's an amazing story, and there's all kinds of things we could consider in this story. But I only want you uh, to consider with me just one thing. I want you to consider the notion of faith in the story. Where's faith found in the story? It's found in the words of Jesus. He marveled at their faith. Not the faith of the young men. Not even the faith of the crowd. He marveled at their faith. They had to work to put him in the position to be healed, their friend. They had to believe that Jesus could do it. Or else they wouldn't be motivated to drop him down into the roof. They had to be utterly committed to their friend. They had to have faith on his behalf because he couldn't place himself in the path of Jesus by himself. What's the point? The title of my sermon is A Borrowed Faith. Sometimes we have a misconception of faith that just individualizes it and it's just about me. That's not true. Faith is frequently borrowed. And it's never better demonstrated than in the body of Christ. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about faith. He's speaking about Christian community. And he says there's times when you can just be tired and discouraged. You've been there, right? 
completely worn out. And it feels like the faith that you have is all drained out. In that context, he says, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain, but his brother's heart is sure. Have you been there? Have you had one of those occasions where it seemed like all your faith was drained out? And then at just the right time, a brother or sister in Christ gives you an encouraging word and your faith is renewed. You might have been on the precipice of unbelief and it was revived because of the other. My friends, we need one another. That's what is so profoundly important about the community of faith right here. You can't do it on your own. I heard about a Christian psychologist one time who had a client that was given to severe bouts of depression. And while he was on vacation, he got an emergency phone call from her. And she said to him, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to commit suicide. And he said, I struggled to try to figure out what to do and what to say. I'd counseled or I'd tried. And then he said, words of a pastor that I'd heard came to mind. And the pastor's words was, sometimes... You just have to borrow somebody else's faith. And he said to her, I want you to know, my friend, that I understand that you have no faith in God or yourself right now. But I have faith in God and in you. You're going to have to borrow my faith. The woman came back home. She's alive and rejoicing in grace. I want to tell you, you'll never know sometimes when one of those events is in front of you. But if you listen carefully for the promptings of God, you'll be able to speak into the life of another and give them faith. It's borrowed faith. Let me be more personal. There's been many times in 18 years of ministry here where my faith gas tank has been running on fumes. If you've never been in the role that I'm talking about, you might not understand. But you just run out. And I don't know how many times someone prompted by God, they didn't know they didn't know how important it was, has given me a note of encouragement, has spoken to me somewhere in the week. And my faith has been renewed. 
They were the agent of God, and I borrowed their faith. Let me ask you, who needs your faith? You might know somebody. I'll give you a simple assignment. Be like one of those four friends and take that person who needs your faith and figuratively place them at the feet of Jesus. They might need your faith because they have no faith in Jesus. And you intercede on their behalf. Don't give up, my friends. Don't give up. It's your faith that will bring them to faith. They may have faith in Jesus that's waning and so exhausted they can't take another step. And it could be your faith, your word, your prayer that could give them the faith they need. I'm just certain every one of us could walk out of here this week and find someone to hand our faith to. Why don't you try it? It's called being the body of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, the faith of our friends. We thank you for the body of Christ uh, that stands in our place. Um, Our brothers and sisters in the faith who lift us up, speak words of truth into our life, pray for us. I thank you also, Lord, for those people who faithfully, every day of their life, pray for someone who's got no faith at all. They pray for a person who doesn't even believe that they will. Lord, we pray you will honor the prayers of those faithful people. And you will encourage them in their faith to keep pressing on and praying in an intercessory way for others. And we pray, Lord, that you will prompt our hearts right now or, or later this week concerning a person that we're pretty sure needs a lift. And we pray you'll give us uh, the means to do it. Maybe just a personal word or an email or a note that will speak into their life and give them the faith they so desperately need. And we'll thank you for working through our words and our hands and our feet by the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.